This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Just a quick heads up here at the top. One of the first things I'm going to do in this episode is swear. So if you're not listening on your earbuds already, you might want to pop them in. Here's the show. There's this word I've been trying to define over the last couple of days. Shitposting. It's almost difficult. Like, as you see, I struggle to explain this. It's almost difficult to explain. It's more something you understand. Robert Evans is what some people call extremely online. He's an expert in shitposting. It's more like the oxygen of large chunks of the Internet. If you were going to shitpost me in this interview, how would it work? Like, I'd be talking to you and then what would happen? So I could just start trolling you. One one option for shitposting would be like if I were to just start uh, lying about when and where it was invented and tell you that there was a really clear etymology of the term and a really clear time. You know, I could, I could say, oh, you know, it started in 2005 on 4chan and there was this this single user named. So it's a shitpost because it's not true. But a real shitpost is more than that. It's a lie that's wrapped in something familiar, something enticing. Maybe even something innocent. Robert says, think about wandering down the street and seeing a $100 bill on the ground. And you reach down. And as you grasp it, you realize the bottom of the $100 bill is is covered in poop. That's kind of what's going on. Like the, the goal is to go into what might otherwise be a productive conversation or discussion and completely derail it by, you know, nonsensical trolling. It's meant to be replicated and spread again and again to become an inside joke, like a Pepe the Frog cartoon. So it sounds like it's sarcasm, but like at scale, like it's just a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, that would be fair. If you didn't grow up on the chunks of the Internet that I grew up on and that the uh, the Christchurch shooter grew up on, you don't really get it. Shitposting was the mother tongue of the man accused of shooting scores of Muslim people in New Zealand last week. Before he got out of his car, armed with an assault rifle, he posted a note to an internet message board saying it was time to stop shitposting and time to make a real-life effort. He left behind a 74-page manifesto, which was a Pandora's box of shitposting. Part of the joke on the internet was that it didn't matter, that nothing that happened there mattered. It was both something you'd throw at people who started taking the internet too seriously in an argument or a, or a debate, and it was something that you would kind of relish in, like meaninglessness of the internet. I hear you say that, though, and I'm like, this shooting proves that's not true. <laughs> yeah, but not to them. It's a joke on 8chan. It, it's very difficult to get yourself in these people's heads, but the response at least in the immediate, the first couple of hours afterwards, was I would describe it as riotous glee. I think a lot of the Nazi stuff, the white nationalist stuff, the the eliminationist rhetoric, the talk of wanting to destroy people, 
that started as jokes because that was part of what you went to those chunks of the internet for. That sort of shock uh, uh, provokes a laughing response. And over a period of time, it stopped being a joke. Today, Robert's going to explain the world this shooter lived in and how shitposting can lead to real-world violence. There's a history here, a history that might explain what we do now. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The New Zealand shooter spent time on 8chan, a message board that was created to give people who were being banned from other message boards a place to go. It's like a last refuge on the Internet for the worst kind of inhumane thoughts. I would be hard pressed to name a worse chunk of the Internet than 8chan. Can you just take me there? Can you like can you log on for me and just like here's what you see and here's what's happening? Uh, yeah. In fact, I've got a tab open right now because I'm a, a broken person who reads these people too often. Okay, so rules for users. The 8chan global rule applies. No illegal content in the United States of America, which is broken very regularly, but someone's got to post it. One post below that is somebody discussing how the attack on Christchurch was clearly a false flag. Another person says, it's just another commie and Muslim op. And then someone responds to that, you dumb effing Negro. Do you once think that the controlled government is not going to take your guns and stop the immigration? Why do you trust your own argument? Go back to your sandbox where you belong, kebab, which is a, a racist comment against Middle Easterners. Yeah, more and more stuff like that. There's pictures of a Sonnenrad, which is a white nationalist symbol that the shooter had on his chest. Somebody uploads one of those in a comment. There's more argument about whether or not it's a false flag, which is what the debate has turned into after the shooting, uh, is is a lot of people claiming it's a false flag. I suspect some of them believe that. I suspect some of them are just doing it to try to create enough plausible deniability that they don't get shut down. It's essentially shitposting. Uh, there's a lot of people blaming it on the Jews. And boy, howdy, I can tell you, half the times I see the word Jews on here, it's all capitalized. Are there jokes on there, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of these are jokes. They just aren't funny to you or me. But they're jokes. Huh. Tell me about that. So one of the posts on here, there's a picture of Dylan Roof, the Charleston church shooter. And the words attached to the post are just, do it, faggot. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're talking about a message board right now, but I know that you did this study where you looked at online fascists to try to figure out like how they got there. And you found that YouTube was actually a really important part of the process. Can you explain how people got from watching some seemingly innocent thing on YouTube to ending up in these terrible message boards that spew hate? 
so YouTube has an algorithm um, because it's it's too big, or at least a lot of the people at Google believe it's too big for the content to be curated by humans. And this algorithm decides what you see next after you watch a YouTube video. The goal of YouTube's algorithm is to keep you on YouTube as long as possible because that makes the most money for Google. The issue with that is the algorithm has learned because it's a learning algorithm, that the kind of content that keeps you on YouTube the longest is the stuff that's most controversial. It doesn't need to be truthful for it to do that. Well, it's common enough that there's a word for it, which is red pilling, which is like your transition from a normal person to someone who's watching neo-Nazi videos. I wonder if you could introduce me to one person who you met, how they went from you know, regular Joe to something very different. One guy described himself as watching documentaries about Hitler and then coming across a documentary called The Greatest Story Never Told, which is the single most cited piece of YouTube propaganda by these neo-Nazis. And The Greatest Story Never Told is like a seven-hour documentary that's made up with clips of other documentaries. This guy Whoever made it stole clips from movies about World War II and other documentaries, but overlaid them with his own narration. And it's essentially the story of World War II, but told from a pro-Hitler perspective. Mm. And because it's got so many clips from older documentaries, from History Channel documentaries and movies, YouTube puts it in the same category as that stuff, or at least did. I think they've gotten better at moving that specific thing as time went on. Part of the problem of YouTube is that you know, something put together by a legitimate historian can look the same as something put together by a far-right propagandist because they just both need to be reasonably good at editing. So what you're really painting the picture of is this kind of unholy alliance between white nationalists with a very specific message and an algorithm with no specific message but that likes to make money and likes to stimulate you. And the two of those things together are kind of supercharging each other. Yeah, and and, and some of this is a real fundamental issue in, in what the internet has developed into in the last decade and change. Because if you at Slate, for example, uh, were to start publishing like Holocaust denial propaganda, that would be the end of your site. That would be the end of your career as a journalist. That would be like, it would be very easy for people to be like, this isn't okay. What has happened here? But if YouTube serves Holocaust denial propaganda to 10 million people, YouTube makes a lot of money and there's no consequence. And you you don't really see what's happening until you read what these guys are saying. I was struck by the fact that like, there was actually a style guide that was yeah. leaked I think from the Daily Stormer yeah, saying, yeah. like, you should use irony. You should use humor. That's how we get people in the door. They're very aware of this. There's definitely evidence that once people became aware of what the algorithm was doing, they started trying to manipulate it to uh, to red pill more people. They're not dumb. Like the, the Christchurch shooter was not a dumb guy. 
he understood how to make his shooting go viral. And this is something I think that a lot of people don't get. Because in the wake of the shooting, you had a lot of folks like Ben Shapiro, uh, who I, I come back to a lot because he's a significant part of this, who would say stuff like, don't use the shooter's name, don't spread his manifesto, don't spread his videos. You know, you're giving him what he wants if you do that. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what this guy was going for, because this guy was not trying to get his manifesto and his video spread around the normal users of Twitter. He wasn't trying to become famous to you and me. He was trying to become famous on 8chan and on other similar dark chunks of the internet because those are the people that he knew would be most influenced by the text of his manifesto. And those are the people he knew that he could convince to carry out uh, more shootings. I mean, we're talking about what happened in Christchurch and this guy's manifesto as revealing how extremely online he was is. And that's true. But part of what I think is interesting about your research is that you've shown how this online version of white nationalism is really a kind of reboot of white nationalism from the 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah. You know, shitposting really has its origins with a guy named George Lincoln Rockwell. Rockwell was the founder of the American Nazi Party in 1959. So think of how racist you have to be to be forming a Nazi party 15 years after the end of the war, 14 years after the end of the war or so, where there's where there's 30 year olds walking around who can remember Auschwitz. So Rockwell, one of his strategies was he would follow Martin Luther King Jr. around at his rallies and he would carry gigantic signs that were covered in racial slurs and that were covered in anti-Semitic slurs. Uh, and he drove around in what he called the hate bus, which was a bus that was painted in all of these these garish and incredibly obscene slurs like the FBI in the 1960s, which was a very racist organization. That FBI was shocked by the racism displayed by George Lincoln Rockwell. Commander George Lincoln Rockwell, you are head of the American Nazi Party? Yes, sir. What's your view on the way that Hitler dealt with the Jews of Germany? I think Hitler dealt with the Jews of Germany the same way he dealt with all traitors, the same way we will. I think he has been lied about uh, more than any human being in history except Jesus Christ. And the reason he did this, the reason that he he made his signs and his his the media that he exposed people to so extreme is that he just wanted to make them angry. He didn't care about convincing them in the moment. He wasn't trying to do anything but derail, number one, these civil rights marches that he would show up at. He wanted to get more attention. And so he wanted to be as extreme as possible. But he also had a belief that he stated quite openly that you couldn't convince people of anything. The only way to have an impact on someone was to cause them to have an extreme emotional reaction. So if you made someone angry or horrified, that was as good as anything else because you could influence them because that's the state of mind in which people are susceptible to having their mind changed. I mean, it strikes me that back in the 60s, there was just one George Lincoln Rockwell but now we have a whole bunch of people doing similar sorts of things on the Internet. Yeah. Part of that is because of how anonymous it is, because you can get away 
on a place like 8chan's poll board. You can you can do that stuff all day long. You can say these horrible things. You can cheer on a mass shooter. And then you can go into your job at a bank or wherever it is you work. And no one's the wiser. And this is something where I think the, uh, the anti-fascists, uh, online Antifa in particular, have really been right for the last couple of years. Because one of the things that they have been doing, and most of what they do online, is doxing these people, is going through leaked chat logs from their groups and finding clues these people have posted so that they can eventually expose this person as a member of this group. Here's his face. Here's where he works. Here's what he does for a living. Here's the community he lives in. And a lot of people, a lot of liberals in particular, said that this was not okay and that Antifa shouldn't be doing this and that it was an unreasonable escalation. And the anti-fascists would argue, no, people, particularly people of color, need to know who in their community is a neo-Nazi. If this guy, the Christchurch shooter, if he'd been doxxed four months before this shooting, Maybe someone would have recognized what was going on. Maybe someone at the store that sold him guns would have recognized what was going on. I also think, you know, a lot of people are talking about trying to shut down 8chan's poll board. I think rather than that, FBI agents, you know, law enforcement, international law enforcement, really, there should be people monitoring this forum at all times. That calls back, too, to the 60s and how we used to have a lot more domestic intelligence work, I think. And it sounds like what you're saying is if we want to really confront this online threat, we need to look back to what we did when someone like George Lincoln Rockwell was around. Yeah, because his group was heavily infiltrated by the FBI and heavily infiltrated by uh, uh, countering violent extremism researchers too, college students in some cases who would pose as Nazis for long periods of time just to understand what was going on in these groups. And there is some of that happening in 8chan. There's people who do go into this and try to understand it. I have to ask you a question, which is um, you talked about doxing. I wonder if you're recommending that because you feel like the platforms and the governments aren't going to take any action here. They haven't yet. I do believe in in working with law enforcement to try to stop this, but they don't know what to do right now, and they don't have a lot of resources to do anything. There's not the political will with this current administration to fix this. But, you know, there are some thornier questions, which is just like, what can you do legally to stop this stuff? One of the terms that I think everyone listening to this podcast is going to start hearing a lot more often as there are more of these massacres over the course of 2019 is stochastic terrorism. And stochastic terrorism is randomly generated terrorism through the Internet. It's it's essentially throwing enough propaganda out there that you convince people to carry out attacks randomly, like different people around the world. And this is this is very related to something called inspirational terrorism, which ISIS has been doing for a while. You know, ISIS will put out a magazine saying, hey, if you can't buy a gun, if you live in a country where you can't get guns, rent a truck, drive it into a crowd, declare your allegiance to the Islamic State, and then hope that some random person who's sympathetic to ISIS reads it and carries out an attack. And that works. But it sounds so, like it sounds like what you're saying is that we've kind of started this snowball rolling downhill and there's not a great way to stop it. Yeah, because inspirational terrorism is illegal. If you're saying, go kill people, that's illegal. If you're just saying, Muslims are killing white people, Muslims are killing white people, immigrants are outbreeding white people. And if you say that over and over and over again to people who are believe you, well, then eventually those people are left with no other 
decision in their minds but to kill non-white people. But you're not breaking the law because it's not illegal to say white people are being outbred by immigrants. That's legal, even if the end result of it is people are going to murder immigrants. We had a big problem with uh, with white nationalism and fascist organizations in the uh, the late 80s, early 90s in the United States. Groups like the Hammerskin Nation, uh, the Aryan Nations, which are mostly defunct now. Uh, ditto the KKK. David Duke's KKK was big, you know, sort of during that, like in the 80s, some of the early 90s. And then, you know, they dropped off. They they got infiltrated to a significant degree. A lot of them went to jail. You know, it started. It got to the point where, you know, in the early 2000s, if you could get 50 people at a Klan gathering or a neo-Nazi rally. That was a huge rally. And a lot of these groups were almost dead. And then they started congregating online. And I didn't initially make this point. I read it from another researcher on Twitter whose, whose name I'm spacing right now. But a lot of the internet are essentially long-term permanent Klan rallies. And every now and then someone leaves that rally and commits a mass shooting. Um, but they would never have been able to gather like this in this kind of numbers and organize and radicalize in this way without the Internet and without the anonymity given by the Internet. Which gets back to the platforms and the servers and the tech industry. I mean, what should we all be looking for this week from a place like YouTube, from a place like 8chan, from a place like 4chan? In terms of YouTube, people need to be putting pressure on YouTube to fix their algorithm or to stop it. The problem is they're never going to do that on their own. I don't believe they will. I think they might try to make some changes to the algorithm. You know, other researchers have talked to people at YouTube directly about this. And their reaction is that's ridiculous. You don't know what you're talking about. This is not a problem. How many bodies do they need to see? I don't know. But they continue to not take it seriously. And I think it's because they can't take it seriously and continue to be profitable in the way that they have been. I think there need to be advertiser boycotts of YouTube, and I suspect eventually there needs to be regulation. There's precedent for terrorist groups using these services to recruit and being stopped. Because in 2014, 2013, 2015, when ISIS was ascendant, they were using all of these social media platforms, uh, YouTube, but primarily Twitter and Facebook, to recruit, and they recruited an army through these services. And tens of thousands of people went to Iraq and Syria, and a lot of them started their path to going there via conversations on Twitter and on Facebook and you know videos and, and stuff on YouTube. And there was a very successful multinational effort to stop that, involving governments, involving volunteers, and involving the social media services themselves. We have not seen that applied to the white nationalist terrorist movement. And part of it is because people don't see the international fascist movement that way, but it is. The Tree of Life synagogue shooter, the Christchurch mosque shooter, and Lieutenant Christopher Hassan, who's the Coast Guard lieutenant who almost carried out a massacre in the U.S. and was only stopped because he was caught buying drugs on the same work computer he was using to plan his massacre. These guys are all part of the same terrorist organization, essentially, even though there's no individual organization they're a part of. They're a part of this international fascist movement, which is attempting to radicalize more people all around the world to carry out more attacks, to provoke more division 
and to eventually bring the United States and other nations to the brink and past the brink of a civil war because they believe that will lead to the white ethnostates that they want to see brought to life. Robert Evans writes about countering violent extremism for Bellingcat and is host of the podcast Behind the Bastards. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. I was going to ask you to leave a rating and a review, but you could just hold the door open for someone today. Or you could follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thank you for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.